America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Is the U.S. holding up an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza? Should Biden's aid package pass? And do we need NATO anymore? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Catholic Charities and Bethlehem College. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we're in the same situation we were last week. There seems to be an impending Israeli ground invasion, but it hasn't started yet. And we're getting more indications in the press, according to various leaks, that the Biden administration is discouraging Israel from going in on the ground. This is not being said publicly. If you discount uh, a, a shouted question to Biden that they they say he misheard when when someone shouted out, you know, should should Israel not go in on the ground so you can negotiate more? He said yes, but we have had four releases of hostages. Now, we had an initial pair, I think, last week, and another pair uh, just a day or two ago here. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, the reason Hamas takes hostages is um, a cynical abuse of um, the religious obligations Judaism puts on Jews to ransom hostages wherever they can. Um, It puts Jews at a, a, a severe disadvantage. Um, and they also do it for, uh, the reason you're seeing now, which is to release them slowly in order to mollify and soften international opinion, make themselves seem like a reasonable partner that is cooperating and, uh, is guided by normal political objectives, um, rather than genocidal passions. And, uh, we shouldn't fall for that. Um... Yeah, at this pace, they could go basically a year, like releasing hostages. Yeah, and um, you know, it may be delaying. Uh, it, it may be delaying the ground invasion. I don't, you know, I don't have access to what kind of talks are happening between the Israeli government and Qatar and and Hamas or 
you know, who knows who else is involved in these talks. Um, you know, and I don't know Israeli intelligence about where um, some of these hostages are being held. So uh, I, I can't comment on that. I can say, though, that um, the longer that Israel is uh, withheld from doing a, a ground invasion where they would actually go into the tunnels uh, and disrupt the manufacture of rockets, uh, destroy Hamas material, capture more intelligence on Hamas and their leadership, um, the worse off they are because they're, they're left with then these bombardments of Gaza, which work against them in public opinion internationally. Um, and I think that's a disaster for them long term. So, Noah, just in terms of U.S. interest, does it make any sense, you know, hypothetically, if, we, if we're restraining Israel and we can continue to do so for another month and get all the American hostages back, is that in any way a, 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 a hypothetical deal worth considering just to kind of grind down on the issues of principle here? Well, if... From a purely very parochial perspective from Washington, I, I would want to see every American released. It's sort of, I, I would kind of reject the premise a little insofar as it's just simply not up to us. I mean, if you think the Israeli public is um, incensed by the absolutely horrific murder of 1,400 of its citizens now... Imagine how they'll feel. How they'll feel if these negotiations in Qatar produce precisely the release only of dual nationals, people who only have another passport besides an Israeli passport. You will not have seen the kind of rage from the Israeli public that you will see then. What we're what we're witnessing from the administration is kind of speaking out of both sides of its mouth right now, um, in public and in uh, gaggles with reporters. You see the administration say. Well, a ceasefire is just simply untenable. Um, it's it's not something that we will accept. It will it would only allow Hamas the capacity to regroup, rearm, and prepare for another act of genocidal vengeance at a time of its choosing against Israelis. But then they're also issuing statements on background and and, and two reporters apparently, which are reporting on them with conspicuous synchronicity in the Times and the, the Journal and the Washington Post and elsewhere uh, that. You know, this is going to be a disaster for Israel. Urban combat is a nightmare. What was the experience in Mosul uh, for the United States? And do you think you could do better than we could do? And um, you don't have achievable objectives. What's your plan for the day after? You're going to go in there and pursue regime change. Regime change is a nightmare. You can't do this. So why even try? Israel doesn't want to do this. Israel's not chomp champing at the bit to go into Gaza and reoccupy Gaza. They'd love to avoid this. In fact, I think if they had their druthers, they'd prefer to focus on neutralizing Hezbollah's capacities in the north and in Lebanon. But they don't simply, they just do not have that option. So it's solipsistic to even engage in this kind of um, sort of sub rosa effort to convince the Netanyahu government to probably indulge what is the Netanyahu government's instincts, which is to be far more cautious about... Uh, ground incursions in Gaza. So, I, I mean, I just think there's a, a fair amount of duplicity coming from the Biden administration, which has said pretty much all the right things in public, but it's 
it seems to me, based on the leaks, to be pretty superficial and cosmetic. So, Charlie, it's it's, it's one thing to have prudential concerns about a ground invasion, which I think are legitimate, even if they're um, wrongheaded. But the idea of a ceasefire, <laughs> ceasefire now, you know, two weeks afterwards, when there hasn't nothing's happened on the ground, would would basically be it's just a way of saying Hamas should get away with this. Right. What do those two words mean? There was a ceasefire prior to this horrendous attack. Israel did not initiate this. So much of the discussion here makes it sound as if the two sides got tired of the status quo, had a meeting, and agreed to go to war. But that's not what happened. On that Saturday morning, Israel was aware that there was a threat to it, but it wasn't planning a ground invasion of Gaza. It wasn't worried about Hezbollah to its north. It wasn't weighing the difficult decisions that one always has to make when hostages are involved. Everything that has flown here has flowed from Hamas's decision to do what it did. To stand up and say, we need a ceasefire, implies a sharing of responsibility. It implies that there were two prime movers. It implies that we are in the middle of something, not at the beginning. And none of those conditions is true. Frankly, it's unthinking. I think it is a stark reminder of the instinctive lines that get drawn in every society between people who at some level believe in evil and those who at some level do not. Between those who think that everything is a construct, between those who are in love with language over hard facts, it would, of course, be better if there were not bad actors in the world. It would be better if there weren't dictators. It would be better if there weren't terrorists. It would be better if there weren't rapists in a domestic context. But there are, and you have to proceed accordingly. That's why we lock our doors. That's why some of us own firearms. That's why we take out insurance. And when you're a nation, that's why you have a military and you form alliances and you have intelligence services and so on. There's no use saying we should have a ceasefire. Peace is the way. Yeah, great. And in every circumstance possible, I would like to see that as well. But we're not in that circumstance anymore. Winston Churchill used to complain about this in the House of Commons. He used to say to those who called for peace at all costs that that was a perfectly good rejoinder to the suggestion that Britain or another free country should start invading others. But it didn't really answer any questions that were posed by bad actors. Hamas did this. It did this. There's no point going on TV and saying we need a ceasefire unless your aim is for Hamas to get away with it and retain whatever capacities it has to do it again. And that's the last point that needs making. This was not an accident. It wasn't an inadvertent explosion of a munitions store that can be fixed by better safety rules in the future. This was a deliberate act carried out by an organization 
that has in its charter unyielding hostility to its neighbor. And if that organization remains in its current form and is not degraded, it will do it again. That's not conjecture. That's not fear-mongering. That is right there in the terms and conditions. So I, I don't know what question ceasefire is supposed to be answering. So when the, when the topic is our understanding of evil, we got to go to M- MBD, to our, our resident expert on analyzing evil. So do you, do you, do you accept that MBD, that uh, partial framework that Charlie had here, that, that one element of how you look at this conflict is, is whether you truly believe in evil or not? Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of it. I mean, I think um, uh, you know, I think that's informing why you see um, a common form of protest uh, against Israel has been pulling down the missing posters um, mm-hmm. that identify the hostages. I think what is happening there is psychologically, people who want to support what they think of as the Palestinian cause are trying to cleanse that cause of its, of the evil, right? They're trying to deny it. In fact, when people have been confronted about why they're pulling them down, they tend to go into florid conspiracy theories that there's, this is somehow these hostage photos are faked up or AI generated or whatever. Um, and part of a propaganda effort. Um, so yeah, I think there's, um, that's a sign that people are trying to, um, you know, cleanse their conscience um, or resolve their conscience with their stated convictions. Um, and yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's uh, there's a total unwillingness among a lot of people, a lot of potentially smart people, to um, make a distinction between wanton slaughter and, uh, you know, an organized, targeted military operation. Um, And that itself is a a form of moral blindness that we have to guard against. So, Noah, we had Joe Biden give a, a speech last week after coming back from Israel. His, you know, he's, he's, um, been very pro-Israel and has been appreciated over there, but there are criticisms you can make of th- these speeches and statements and where he's where he's coming from. What did you make of the speech? Well, <clears throat> it started out all right. It started out um, much like many of the public statements that Joe Biden has given, and I've gone out uh, on conservative media and defended the president's tone and tenor and focus, because I think it's been right on until that speech. Um, He started off great discussing what I think is an invaluable effort that needs to be made to popularize and retail the notion that what we are seeing here, an explosion of violence from Iran's proxies, including not just Hamas, but Hezbollah, but the Houthis in Yemen, but these um, Shia militias in Uh, Iraq, which are targeting American positions, the region is lit up and the United States is engaged in this conflict, kinetically, intercepting missiles inbound for Israel. We are in the fight. And the president should have said that. He didn't. But he did describe the emerging axis that we are seeing 
between great powers, rogue states, and a constellation of terrorist proxies, all of whom are loosely aligned behind the goal of putting an end to the age of American dominance. All good. And then he takes a wild left turn and decides to languish in this comfort zone in which the Obamaites, who clearly had a lot of influence on this speech, um, take comfort in castigating Americans and savaging Americans for their uh, capacity to, and, and desire to, rather, um, succumb to their worst instincts in moments like these. First of all, he, he went off and preemptively attacked Israel for saying they, and saying they should not succumb to the hatreds that they're clearly, you know, want to be blinded by. I caution the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage, as though they have been <laughs> or, act, or are acting mm-hmm. in any way that, that resembles that sort of instinct. But in that, he also said, when I was in Israel yesterday, I said that the, the American experienced, when, when America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. So while we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. Now, I don't know what he's referring to there. He could be referring to a lot of things, our post-9-11 projects abroad, uh, our, uh, or perhaps our, uh, what we succumbed to at home, the, the sort of revisionist history around the notion that, that Americans were uh, uniquely hateful, uniquely paranoid, lashed out at their neighbors in lieu of any more uh, productive enterprise in the wake of 9-11. That's, that's a lie. It's a slander. It's something that has been retailed by academia for years and has clearly infected the minds of quite a lot of these young people who are glutting the streets, donning keffiyeh, and, and uh, advocating and popularizing Islamist propaganda, Hamas propaganda. That's not true. Between 2000 and 2008, the uh, FBI statistics demonstrated that while there were hate crimes directed at uh, Muslims, they were by no means prohibitive. In fact, Jews in particular were uh, the biggest targets of those episodes of hate. You can go back in the record and see interfaith outreach efforts in the press, George W. Bush going on TV anywhere he could to talk about how uh, Islam is a religion of peace and we need to respect and defend our neighbors, the vigilance of law enforcement protecting the Muslim community in America, uh, and uh, the efforts to attack the efforts uh, on uh, among some disreputable uh, Americans to delegitimize Islamic practice. I mean, the, the balance here is in favor of the idea that Americans behaved with enormous charity in the wake of 9-11. That was, that's how I remember it. And I remember I tweeted something very benign and innocuous about this, saying, literally, that's not how I remember it. And the whole universe of Internet, very online people came down around my shoulders saying, you just don't remember it right. No! This is a revisionist history that you've internalized. It is false. It is libelous to attack Americans for how they behaved after 9-11. And I condemn the president for his instinct to pivot from a true, genuine geostrategic challenge to the United States that we all need to mobilize around, and then counter that, just countervening those efforts, undermining those efforts, by, by criticizing Americans and saying they're basically not up to the task. Who wrote this speech? They should be shunned. They should never write another speech in Washington again. It was horrendous, and it lost an opportunity that we will never get back. So MBDX, a question to you. Israel will end up going in on the ground into Gaza, yes or no? Yes. Noah. Yes. And they may have to do so with the Biden administration sort of uh, on the sidelines, not happy about it. Charlie. 
I agree with Noah's answer. Yes, and they may have to do so with the U.S. unhappy about it. I also think the answer is going to be yes. It's going to be extremely hard operation, but uh, the answer is yes. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Catholic Charities. Giving the gift of real estate is as easy as one, two, three. And now that donation could become the cornerstone of Catholic Charities USA Donor Advised Fund, or DAF. Transform lives and earn a tax deduction by donating real estate and creating a CCUSA DAF. The CCUSA DAF is a dedicated charitable account that gives you a simple, flexible, tax-efficient way to support your favorite charities, and you can use it to make an impact on the lives of people in need. When you generously give your property, you support the Catholic Charities' mission of helping those in need help themselves. Starting the process is easy. Begin by visiting catholiccharitiesusa.org to connect with its knowledgeable staff members. They'll walk you through the process of opening a DAF today. Again, it's catholiccharitiesusa.org. Please check it out. So Charlie, there was a lot of attention last week, understandably, to the New York Times and others totally blowing this uh, propaganda lie about Israel bombing a hospital in Gaza. We've had the New York Times run an editor's note, I think was was pretty good. Importantly, it, it mentioned that it was too credulous about the information given to it by Hamas, which is a, a pretty big gen- journalistic era. And then I'm looking at the homepage now, where they have uh, a headline, we've seen this headline a lot over the last two weeks, death toll climbs in Gaza as Israel intensifies airstrikes. But the, the little uh, sub-item is, Israel bombardment killed more than 700 people overnight. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry said the number could not be immediately verified. So at least that's a little better than what we've seen from the Times and other media outlets that instantly uh, almost before this attack had ended, began taking the Hamas version of the death count in Gaza and putting it up on their news websites or on their, their cable channels and, and running it side by side with the numbers of killed in the terror attack. The most simplistic way to think about this is to acknowledge that there are certain words that hit the erogenous zones of the sort of people who work at the New York Times and Gaza Health and Ministry are among them. <laughs> Put them all together, and you've got a source that would be instinctively trusted. I think that the New York Times and others wanted the hospital story to be true. Because I think that they want to cover this as a both-sides issue, and they feel more comfortable getting back into the ideological framework that they held without a great deal of pushback until three weeks ago. I'm not saying that the individuals at the New York Times and elsewhere want people to die. I'm not saying that the individuals want Israel to bomb hospitals. I'm saying that they prefer this story to be one in which no one can really know. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times, yes, on the opinion pages, which are distinct from the news side, wrote a piece pleading extreme epistemological uncertainty. It's impossible to know what's going on. That is the preferred approach. And when it looked, I shouldn't even say looked, when it was alleged that the Israelis had bombed a hospital killing 500 people, 
That gave The Times and The Post and CNN and Reuters and the Associated Press and the BBC and others the chance to turn this into football coverage with a score on each side of the screen, which is, of course, what they did immediately. The CNN Chiron put the number of Israeli dead and then the number of dead in Gaza next to each other. USA Today had an obscene graphic uh, that showed in a strange graph form how many had died in Israel and how many had died in Gaza. The BBC did the same thing. And the New York Times started juxtaposing the number of people who were killed by the incursion and massacre of October 7th with those who had been killed in the retaliatory attacks, allegedly. I think this is how they prefer to cover this question. Usually, it's the opposite. Usually, at least within domestic politics, the search is for a clear villain and a clear hero. In the case of Republicans and Democrats, for a party that is cast as weird or outlandish and a party that is cast as the norm. But the the desire here is to get to a position in which they can say a pox on both your houses, six of one, half a dozen of the other, and get away from all of the uncomfortable questions that are being asked within the coalition that dominates within the press and most of our elite institutions. Because it's not particularly fun at the moment to be on the left. We have our own problems on the right. We're watching them play out in the House of Representatives as we record but for the first time in a long time the assumptions and the alliances on the left side of the aisle are being questioned and the herald uh, of uh, that army the new york times is desperate to move back into its comfort zone yeah so now you've seen the split from most establishment democrats like joe biden Again, can have criticisms of a speech. You uh, lodged one, but he represents kind of a more traditional politics on this. And then you have the politics on college campus, which we've talked a lot about, and the politics in the street, where you've seen these protests. There's a big one in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, over the weekend that that are genocidal in their sentiment. If you take the the chance seriously, and I think we have we don't have the luxury of pretending that they're not serious anymore. I, I, you can be, you can be charitable and say, well, this is just sort of a protest expression when you have a march in the streets of New York city of all places with these overeducated affluent white liberals chanting, um, support for intifada and that there's only one solution to the Jewish problem. Yeah, I don't think we have any choice but to take it seriously, given what we had just previously witnessed. And it's not just there. Attacks uh, from protesters in Skokie, Illinois. A stabbing at a rally in uh, Minnesota. Chicago protests glutting the streets, menacing the population. The New York Times wrote up yesterday the, the headline, Angry and Afraid, Tensions High in New York Over Israel-Hamas War. And it's sort of a both-sides story. But all they could muster, save for this one psychotic attack that killed a child, uh, which the president himself singled out in that speech, deservedly so, 
um, that police announced the arrest of two men who were shouting anti-Muslim slurs while attacking three other men on October 11th. The other side of the aisle is over 100 arrests in New York City over the unrest in support of this Hamas rally. The left has incubated this. The Democratic Party has incubated this. They had the opportunity to call out the anti-Semitism on their own side when it was Ilan Omar thrice uh, contravening standards of basic human decency, finally compelling the Democratic Party to do something about it, only for them to back off amid pressure from within their own coalition and issue this statement condemning all hate in all its forms, which is subsequent, which is just tantamount to condemning nothing. And there's this myth that has grown up on the left that Republicans only ever defended Donald Trump whenever he said something stupid, something racially inflammatory, something bigoted that they only ever got his back. That is not true. Republicans came out en masse to condemn his remarks after Charlottesville. They condemned his s-hole country's remark. They condemned him when he sat down with Nick Fuentes. And a lot of them are gone. You go back in the record and you see who came out. A lot of them are retired, primaried, off the political spectrum. I guess it's your turn now, Democrats. If you really meant it, if you meant what you said, that there is no moral equivalence here and the time for choosing is upon us and we should, all be stand, we should all stand and be counted one way or the other, well, it's your turn. The spotlight is on you. This is your coalition. These are your people. They don't subscribe to your vision of politics. You should make that clear. They are not part of your coalition. Maybe some of them even say they're not part of your coalition. You should clarify that. Cast them out by name. Uh, the, the White House got good marks from me, and I think it was due, that they finally came out and, and um, said that some of the rhetoric from the squad members was unacceptable and abhorrent. Good for them. But they need to do that by name. They need to call these people out by name. They need to mobilize the party against them. They need to say the party will not fund you. The party will not support you. In fact, the party is going to support your primary challengers because you are not part of this coalition anymore and we don't want you. I know that's too hard for them to do. I know they will not rise to that occasion. But that is the standard that they set in 2017 through 2020. And it's a standard I'm going to hold them to. So MBD, one of the ironies here, we've talked about this a little bit before as well. You take 90% of these protesters at, at any one of these hateful demonstrations, I, I assume, and ask them, do they in favor of having safe spaces at college campuses so people can be protected from hateful speech? Do they support the whole DEI agenda? Do they uh, um, reject microaggressions and think people need to be more uh, sensitive? They'd all say yes, but then he here they are uh, engaging in these, these chants that uh, literally mean they want to wipe a Jewish state from the, from the face of the earth. Well, right, because, I mean, some colonialists don't deserve to live. I mean, mm -hmm. like, and, or occupy any space. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally insane. <laughs> like, I mean, uh, on some level, right? Like, um, you know, we're, we're always constantly pointing this out, right? That, like, um, you know, they're trying to, you know, uh, say that immigrants only enrich the United States. But a missionary who goes to a remote uh, island off the coast of India that has not been in touch with the mainland uh, in its history, and people are forbidden from going there, well, he's going there to preach the gospel of Christ, well, he can't be allowed to go in, because uh, 
that would taint the native culture to be an act of imperialism in some way. Um, you know, it's, it's heads, heads, they win, tails, you lose. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that both extremes go together, right? I mean, this is like a parody of royalist privilege where, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the princess and the pea uh, in one room and off with their heads in the next room. Um, you know, this is, this is typical of youthful hysteria. Uh, and it's, um, you know, it's a dangerous thing. This is why we have, we used to have institutions that would try to train youth out of this rather than train them into it. Um, but here we are. Charlie, I ask a question to you. Assuming it's a Trump-Biden matchup next year, to the extent that this conflict plays a role in the contest between the two men, it will, in sheer political terms, help Trump more, help Biden more, or be a wash? I think it may help Trump more because there will be people whose enthusiasm for the Democratic Party is diminished by this. And that, by implication, will help Trump, or whoever the Republican nominee is. Noah? I think it's frankly too hard to say at this, from this, vent, you know, this vantage point. Um, <clears throat> it depends on how this conflict unfolds. It depends on how Biden navigates it. Depends on the extent to which he can keep up this, what I think is absolutely justified and deserved uh, effort to link and couple this conflict with the conflict in Ukraine, with the conflict that looms in the South China Sea, all of our enemies are working towards one goal, and uh, it's incumbent on us to recognize it. And Donald Trump could benefit sort of by default, but I don't see him doing much to mobilize sentiment around the idea that he can prosecute this conflict better and I don't know if that's going to change between now and November of 2024. So he could benefit. He would benefit today. Will he benefit a year from now? I don't. I don't know. So Noah, uh, uh, I, I agree with you. We we should be supporting both Ukraine and Israel, obviously. But just hypothetically, if if we did sort of the JD Vance plan and and we pulled funding from Ukraine or drastically diminished it or whatever the exact permutations of that uh, are. Would you think that materially would hurt the cause of Israel, even if you know we're taking the hundred billion from Ukraine and and giving more to Israel than we would have otherwise? Well, it does insofar as Iran is behind all of this. Iranian proxy forces are behind all of the flare up in this region. Iran is supporting Russia's war in Ukraine. Russia is supporting Hamas by taking high level meetings with Hamas, supporting them diplomatically, and giving them diplomatic cover and materially. And China's obviously uh, supporting Iran materially by providing them arms and trying to supplant U.S. influence in the region by orchestrating this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the elevation of the Palestinian question absolutely advances their interests by polarizing the region against the United States and making it harder to uh, build on the Abraham Accords. So, yeah, absolutely. I think this would materially uh, support Russia's ambitions and support uh, Iran's ambitions. And and if we were to just you know clear the field in Europe for... Russia, as much as that would destabilize the continent and force us to uh, commit resources to its defense, but as our members on the frontier become more and more uh, uh, anxious with their environments, yeah, that would absolutely give Israel um, more a harder time in its region dealing with uh, an Iranian proxy war. MBD, you want to uh, react to that before I get you on the exit? 
I mean, there's 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 a, a couple of strands I could pull out. I think, um, but I'll actually wait. Um, okay. I was going to write a piece about how this is how it's a mistake to view these all as one conflict. Um, okay. All right. But there, uh, we'll get there. There we go. To be continued. Ask a question. I know I take Noah's points. How I speculative help uh, Trump Biden more or be a wash? Uh, I think all of the conflict helps Trump. Um, I think. The, there's a, a kind of, um, you know, if you're not, if you're an independent voter who's not paying a ton of attention to politics, you're thinking, hey, it seemed geopolitically more restful during the Trump years, and under the Biden, it seems like the world's on fire, um, and so uh, I think Trump just benefits from that uh, environment altogether. That like he alone can somehow change the tides of ge- geopolitics with his... He alone can fix. Yeah, the, yeah the, with the force of his personality. Yeah, no, that's that's what I was trying to invoke. Um, and that's what he's, he's going to offer this. Like, he's been offering broad but totally vague solutions about how he'll so- somehow solve the Ukraine war in one day, and I'm sure he'll have the same thing uh, cooked up for his the Israel question when it comes to him. Yeah. Broad, vague, and simple tends to work. I totally agree with your take MBD. So then it, therefore it must be correct. (laughs) I just think, you know, it's, it's intuitive and and may really be true that our adversaries feared Trump more than they do Biden, or at least, you know, worried about him more or didn't know what to make of them. So that just that aspect of unpredictability alone is going to make you a little more cautious. Four years, you know, it's not the, the longest uh, s- sample um, uh, time. So m- maybe just Trump Trump got lucky and Biden uh, has, has uh, suffered m- misfortune and these things would have happened, you know, in a Trump se- second term anyway. But I do think a lot of people are going to say, wow, th- things seem more chaotic now. And as you put it, they're more restful during Trump's time in office. So at the margins, it will help Trump with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the great commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25 at Bethlehem College. Students wrestle with these realities not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generation of students, he observed their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether they are reading the world. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College education in serious joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. That's bcsmn.edu slash editors. Please check it out. So MBD, let me stick with you here. We have... Uh, a little flare-up in the debate over NATO on the right. There's a Rolling Stone story. I do not credit Rolling Stone's reporting on much of anything, but this was about how 
Trump is uh, wants to be more anti-NATO than he was his first time around. Wants to exclude pro-NATO folks from the top levels of his administration, and their their fears he might really try to pull us out. This time, there's some talk about that the first time around. So whether the story is strictly accurate or not, it's not crazy to believe that this is what Trump is thinking. John Bolton, among others, has warned, you know, that he's he's very anti-NATO and he, he Bolton would have worried about this in a Trump second term. And then we have Vivek, our old friend Vivek coming in. And of course, if Trump says it, there must be a lot to be said for it and must make a lot of sense. So he said yesterday, I believe, when a political reporter asked about this, yeah, it's reasonable. It's reasonable to talk about pulling out of NATO. What's your take? Well, I mean, this is an impulse that has existed uh, on the right um, in greater or lesser degree for a very long time. I mean, if you can go back to Robert A. Taft at the end of World War II, basically saying that like an, an Atlantic alliance only makes sense so long as we're facing communism. But if, if that's no longer the case, then, you know, really our focus should be uh, in the Pacific and opening trade routes there. And that, that's, that's been uh, an impulse that, that then reemerged at the end of the Cold War. And, um, you know... Uh, a lot of people on the right have felt like NATO is free riding, uh, allows European nations to free ride on us, uh, allows, uh, and then potentially embroils us in, in unnecessary conflict. And I think Don, that's how Donald Trump felt that somehow like the U S is getting a bad deal out of this. Um, you know, I, I think there are basically, you know, 30 ways to look at the alternate history of the post-Cold War world. Uh, you can take your pick about how things would have gone different if NATO didn't expand beyond Germany or only did the first round of expansion or, you know, if there was, you know, people have argued uh, endlessly whether there was some way to get Russia to buy into some kind of uh, permanent European security arrangement. Uh, well, all those efforts failed. Um, so I think pulling out of NATO now would, um, you know, would basically be sending a, a green light to the, uh, to the Kremlin, um, on some level. Um, even if I think we shouldn't include Ukraine and NATO in the end, um, I think now when you've had NATO basically in a proxy war with Russia, uh, pulling the plug on it is basically, um, you know, unless you have some alternative to restrain Russia, some way of, of giving it a stake in the security arrangements and the borders uh, and political realities as they exist today, I just don't think it's possible. So, no, you can make a case. All right, we have this NATO tripwire around the, the Baltic countries that perhaps wouldn't exist with, without NATO. Maybe we'd want to defend the Baltic countries uh, if Russia went in anyway, even in the absence of NATO. But it just beggars belief that it's it's not, at the end of the day, in our interest, whatever criticism you want to make around the edges, to have a, a massive uh, European alliance under American leadership. It's just hard, hard to believe any any country ever in the history of the world say, nah, 
oh, we, we, we don't want that. Uh, let's, let's not have that. You know, let's, let's have someone else lead that alliance instead or no, no alliance whatsoever and, and uh, chaos and uh, a greater level of chaos and dysfunction in Europe once again. I, I find that hard to disagree with, Rich. I think Michael is absolutely right and has been honest in his assessment that there is a strain of Mr. Republican isolationism that is coming to the fore. That, combined with some cultural hostilities on the right towards Western Europe and the social covenants that prevail in Western Europe, has uh, intensified a segment of the right's hostility towards American alliances and the alliance structure that exists that we've inherited. Uh, I don't think they're being honest. In fact, I think they're lying when they say that this has everything to do with Europe's contributions to its own defense. What has Europe done in the wake of the deteriorating threat environment in Europe, but vigorously contributed to its own defense in ways its supposed critics wanted? How have their critics responded? They've only become more hostile to the alliance in the interim. They are not satisfied by this, which betrays the, um, the lie that they've been retailing for quite some time. Geopolitics is a zero-sum game. What we lose, they gain. What we gain, they lose. And there was this debate, for example, around Montenegro's ascension to the alliance. Donald Trump presided over the expansion of the NATO alliance, by the way, by two members. Everybody kind of forgets about that. One of those members was Montenegro. And the critics, including Tucker Carlson and others, said, well, what does Montenegro bring to the table, really? How do they contribute to their own defense, really? Are we ben- or do we benefit from this in any particular way? In 2016, there was an armed coup in Montenegro, or an attempt And it had the Kremlin's fingerprints all over it. After ascension to the NATO alliance, there were no threats to Montenegro's political um, covenant and its support for the West and integration into the Western alliance. And the reason why it was beneficial to us to integrate them into the Western alliance was so that Russia didn't take a chess piece off the board for us. That's it. Beginning, middle, and end. We have an obligation to prevent Russia from expanding its reach over these states in its periphery that present a threat to um, American stability and the alliance that we preside over, because it's not just us, we have to keep the alliance together. And when, when they're threatened, when Poland is threatened, when the Baltics are threatened, when uh, Bucharest and Sofia are threatened, they'll see to their own defenses, with or without our support, which presents infinitely more complications, infinitely more potential for a conflagration. It's incumbent on us to keep everybody in line, and that means providing for their support and their defense. And that benefits us, because stability benefits us. Prosperity and peace benefit us. I don't find the arguments against this to be particularly convincing, because I don't think they're especially rational. Try. I am strongly pro-NATO, because you, you don't know how much I was hoping that you were muted there, Charlie. So, I, so I, uh, pe- people don't hear this because it's always snipped out. But you, you always, you're, you're the muted police, and I thought you maybe had muted yourself while you're trying to talk, but instead it was especially pregnant. You've got to get pause. up very early in the morning to beat me in the mute game. <laughs> I like NATO because it works. And I think it would be a profound mistake for the United States or any other leading light to abandon it or call in effect for its destruction because of criticisms that they might have, even when those criticisms are real. The point that Noah made is well taken. 
It does seem that there is a broader hostility toward NATO because when the correct allegation was advanced that NATO countries were not pulling their weight, it didn't go away when it was fixed. But I think more broadly, the post-war settlement relies upon two things. One is America being at the top of the pile, economically and militarily. America being the most powerful country in the world, being able to project force in a way that others can't. And two, that American primacy being supplemented uh, by an alliance of other countries that if you had your druthers, you would put in charge. And... I think that irrespective of whether or not NATO existed, let's say that Vivek Ramaswamy is made dictator of the United States and he pulls the United States out of NATO. If something very bad happens in the world, you are going to see the ad hoc restoration of that framework quite quickly. I don't really understand the point here. The... The argument for it seems to me uh, not one that is equivalent to the argument for something that was created at a point in history that is contingent, that is somewhat arbitrary, that if it were dis, uh, disassembled would not be made in the same form. You know, there, there are certain elements within foreign policy where you just go, well, you know why that institution looks like that? It's because those were the good guys in 1945. Or, you know, the UN, for example, puts all sorts of terrible countries on its human rights council. And yeah, I mean, there's no way you would choose to do that absent the existing structure. But, but here you're talking about not a, a, an, an artificial construct with NATO, but sort of how things would go if you had to build it in a crisis. If China invaded Taiwan, if there were a, a world war led by Russia and China, I mean, what would you expect? You'd expect the United States to say, right, who, who, who are we with? What uh, obligations do we have? Who are we working with? Who do we need to spend money? Which countries are sending soldiers? I mean, it just, I, I find in a sense the the opposition to NATO that I hear from many people and most recently from Vivek to be an opposition to the world as it actually exists. It's not, in my estimation, equivalent to a an opposition to the UN, which does seem to me to be a worthless organization with all sorts of Byzantine rules and that has no real connection to how things really work. It seems to me that that many of the critics, they just want the world to be different. They, they would like the power centers to be different or they, they're annoyed at who is functionally in charge or they don't like American hegemony. I just I, I see NATO as a, a good institution that has worked for a long time because it actually reflects how the stable, good democratic nations in the world should and will project force if they're threatened. MBD asks a question to you. JD Vance is winning the debate over Republican foreign policy, yes or no? Uh yes, because he's going at it incrementally uh, and doing it seriously. I mean, circulating a memo like he did this week is serious, but I mean, when he was running in a primary and he was bogged down in third place, 
he took the position that uh, Ukraine, why are we funding Ukraine when we're not funding our own border? Uh, he was kind of the first politician to articulate that in any serious way. He bumped up in the polls. It finally locked in Donald Trump's endorsement. And now that's the, basically the position of the majority of the of the Republicans in the House. Um, so yeah, he's winning. Bonus extra question for you, MBD. If you're a member of the House or the Senate and Biden's aid package gets to you in its current form, probably be, you know, various negotiations over this, but hypothetically gets to you in its current form, you vote yes or no? I vote yes if I think that if I've read the bill and I think the border stuff is real. Um, because then I'm, I'm voting for three things I like and one thing I'm skeptical of, but mm -hmm. I but that I tied rhetorically to the border. I think mm -hmm. you, you take that deal. Um, yeah. No, Rothman, JD's winning or not? No, he's not. Um, he hasn't uh, shown any uh, indication that the conference or the Senate Republican minority is moving towards his position. His memo is serious only insofar as it is written down. <laughs> if you were to actually look at the points point by point, they don't make any sense. The notion that we would stabilize the European continent by sacrificing Ukraine to an invading force, therefore allowing that invading force to get cro closer to NATO's borders, is nonsensical. The arguments in support of Israel as opposed to, to Ukraine are nonsensical. They do not advance the objectives that they think that he claims will be advanced, and I criticize this wait, on wait, Twitter. No, no, you want yes. you want NATO to you want Ukraine to be in NATO, so you want Russia to be next no, to NATO's not. borders, right? No, no, no you don't. I do not. But no, you want? Michael, I do not want Ukraine to be in NATO. Not when it is currently being fighting a Russian invasion force. I want precisely the plan that we have for Israel to be applied to Ukraine, which is to provide it with material support and diplomatic cover. That's it. But what's, what's so? What's your end state for for Ukraine? Ideally, the, the the end state hopefully would be for Ukraine to affect as much battlefield success as is possible. It is not it is not up to us to determine what the end is of this is because we are not engaged in this war. But we're going to be asked Israel's war. We're going to be asked. Whoa, whoa, whoa! The idea that we can dictate terms to either side of this combat of this uh, uh, conflict or either any conflict, frankly is a, fall a fallacy. It depends on the notion that we are somehow engaged in this more than we are. The open, invi the open invitation to NATO will be on the table during whatever negotiations and the okay, war. Okay, but in order to have this argument, we have to advance some kind of a hypothetical that doesn't exist right now. The terms of the debate are what they are. But the, the in, open invitation it's, it's in is, exists. It's interest to, to argue hypotheticals, to argue situations that don't presently exist, because he can't argue against the situations that presently exist. Meaning, well, <laughs> meaning, no, that, you know, if we meaning the idea that the United States this is part of his, his memo. The United States doesn't have a plan in Ukraine, but we do have a plan in right. Israel. The plan is the same for both. Provide material assistance and diplomatic support. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with, with that. And I've kind of thought the same thing. Maybe this maybe you wouldn't agree with this. No, my formulation or way of thinking about it. But Israel does not have an end game in Gaza, right? It's no. Destroy, destroy Hamas, then what, right? right. Uh, and if so, they were to say, then what? Then their hands would be tied, and the, and the functional result of that would be to say Israelis need to live in perpetuity with the threat of a genocidal attack on their population forever. Mm -hmm. Step MBD. one is destroy Hamas. Step two is tomorrow's problem. MBD, last thought. 
I've been trying to get you guys to argue on this podcast for a very long time. At least we, at least we have a little flare up here. I just don't think, I don't, I just, I just, I just, I just, I just don't think, I just don't think it's a plan to say supply. You have to say supply to what end, you know, mm-hmm. what end do we, what end do we want for Ukraine? Do we want Ukraine to be a heavily armed buffer state? Heavily armed by NATO? Do we want NATO, Ukraine to be in NATO? Those are, that's a real question. Do we want to continue this sort of, well, we want Ukraine to be in this liminal state where it's where we've promised NATO membership, right? That's the thing. We promised it in some indefinite time in the future. What does is, is that something like we want? To- Ukraine can't be in NATO. It just can't, right? I mean, uh, and, if you, I mean, if you're really going to go back into the history of this, the map, the the ascension plan, all but stalled in Bucharest in 2008. And it was communicated to everybody, and heard loud and clear, by the way, in the Kremlin, that the plan to ascend NATO, to ascend uh, Ukraine and Georgia, by the way, to NATO, was going to be stalled in perpetuity. And what happened in the following six months was the invasion of Georgia, and six years later mm-hmm. was the invasion of Ukraine. So yes, what we did was signal that there was going to be no ascension to, for Ukraine, not because of military capabilities, but because of the endemic corruption inside Kiev. By the way, yeah, right. So, but then, but then you build it. But if then, Ukraine was whole, intact, and able to defend itself, and its territory was free of invading Russian forces. That'd be another story. But right now, it's not. It is a buffer state. It is a fractured state, and it is our objective to make sure that it is not a failed state on NATO's periphery. All right, MBD, last thought. Oh no, we could leave it there. Okay, Charlie. If I remember correctly, exit question to you: Is JD Vance winning or not? See, I think this is another reason we need NATO in case Michael and Noah go to war. <laughs> I have no no pacts with either of them. I am not convinced by the causation that is implied here. <laughs> right. J.D. Vance point. is yeah. somehow creating this shift that we've seen in public opinion. I think he is, if anything, reflecting a shift that is fairly normal in American foreign policy that tends to happen over time where Americans become tired of sending money abroad or directly fighting, which is not happening in Ukraine. I'm not quite sure where the tipping point is, but I think that Vance is echoing the move rather than prompting it. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. But to, to MBD's point, he was... He was here before the the sentiment had had turned, and MBD was having uh, debates with people at the time. Is this is this popular or or not? Is this hurting JD or or not? And and MBD was consistently saying, "No, it's not hurting him." And this is where the tide is going to go. And, sure, and, but yeah. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that he doesn't believe what he says, or that he is following public mm-hmm. sentiment you're saying whether he had said this or not himself this would be where sentiment is well yeah I'm, okay. i think that americans do over time move in the direction we've seen the move on foreign policy questions and i think that if you start however principled you are let's forget jd vance for a moment and talk about say michael if you start and you're skeptical and you're massively outnumbered and then americans begin to shift then you may end up on the right side, so-called, of, of public opinion. But that doesn't mean you caused the shift. I am mm-hmm. skeptical that the J.D. Vance wing of the Republican Party has enough rhetorical relevance to shift 
the average voter who I don't think is following this debate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think is rather looking at this question as it evolves, seeing that we're bogged down, hearing about the numbers getting ever larger and turning off. I'll just, I'll say this on, on for Vance's behalf. I think two things. I think it, he has mattered. And I think even, even him being in the Senate is one of the reasons why Senate Republicans went over Mitch McConnell's objections and separated mm-hmm. Ukraine funding in the last CR. And Vance is at least uh, advocating his argument in terms of geopolitics. No one may reject them and, and find them silly, but this is a step up from just saying, oh, look at what Zelensky's dressed in in the Congress. Mm-hmm. Right. What a joker. Like a bouncer. Yeah. Or that, that there's like, or this is some drug dealer or cocaine addict that's running Ukraine. Like, he's actually trying to put some meat on the bones here uh, rather than just uh, uh, express a, a, emit a gut instinct or, or uh, a pure populist. Uh, Yelp in the so I I I accept all all the the caveats that have been advanced here. I do think he's winning in the sense that he his side is making progress in the the debate over foreign policy. It is not you know swept through the entirety of of the Senate or the House. It's not um, majority sentiment in in the country, but it's made major gains within the Republican Party. With that, let me do a quick plug for a couple things going on at NR. Last week, last Friday, around 8 a.m., we sent out our first digital edition of the week. This is the front section of the magazine that's so popular with our print readers, little uh, witty, incisive items on the uh, on recent events. And since we've gone monthly, we thought it would make sense to uh, transfer to have a, an actual weekly edition of this section called The Week in people's inboxes. So if you want that, you can get it. Uh, Just search around a little bit for how to sign up. I should get the email myself. I'll share it on uh, Friday. And then also, let me urge you to sign up for NR+. Given just the the nature of events overseas, we've seen a a surge in signups. That's because people value uh, our, our content. And if you are one of those people and have not yet signed up, I suspect you are one of these those people. If you're listening to this podcast, please, please consider signing up. We need people to pay for our content. Not a lot, just just a, a little bit. Doesn't cost a, a ton. So I, I urge you, if you're not already, to consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow Nashville readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, been playing around on Ancestry.com. Yeah, I got um, some info from my folks back uh, in Ireland and started filling out a tree on Ancestry. And you just end up finding um, things that other people have contributed to Ancestry.com because their distant relations are shared with yours. And uh, it's just really fun to see, you know, the first Doherty uh, from my namesake that immigrated to... um, you know, the United States came exactly when you would have expected in 1847 at the height of the famine at age seven and became, mm. uh, I found Hello. out, he be- uh, no, with his family, uh, but with his parents and settled in Wurtsboro, New York, became a bargeman on the Delaware and Hudson Canal, mm. made their life up there. And then, um, the canals 
uh, were closed in the late 1900s. And actually, that's when the Doherty's ended up in Brooklyn. Uh, okay. <laughs> they, made, they delayed the country-to-city move until 60 years after emigrating to the States. Um, and it's just amazing to learn these little little bits of history and where, where your family touched. So, so screwed the, by the advent of the railroads, right, I assume? Uh, yeah, couldn't, could, couldn't compete with the big iron horse anymore as a boatman in, uh, you know, in Wurtsboro, New York. No, not at all. Um, but anyway, it's just amazing to find these details or... Or even pictures of graves and in, in sites mm-hmm. around the country that you haven't seen. Um, it's worth doing. So Noah, you're out in Utah for a TFAS conference. That's right. Uh, the Fund for America Studies, American Studies, um, had me come out to Park City, Utah, to give a speech on my last book, "The Rise of the New Puritans: Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun." It was a very good speech. It was a fun group. Um, TFAS does great work if you're a parent of a college-age uh, young adult who wants to see some of the um, really you know cogent, careful, conservative right-of-center analysis that's uh, still alive and well on campuses, although uh, you know quiet these days, but getting louder every day and doing really good work. You should check out this organization. I'd never been to Utah before. It's gorgeous country, but it's really high. <laughs> and kind of hard to breathe. It's very frustrating going up and down stairs. So, so Charlie, just, you know, mouth open. Speaking of high altitudes, you went to see the Jacksonville Air Show. I did. I actually watched the Jacksonville Air Show from a few miles up the beach. As a friend of mine has a place on the beach, and invited a whole bunch of us to go sit and watch it from afar. So although we didn't get to see the air show right up close we did in effect get to see the air show up close because the planes obviously have to fly somewhere before they get to where they're doing their tricks and uh given how fast they fly that was where we were on the beach so we had a a great day kids absolutely loved it i managed to avoid all the traffic and all the crowds and sit there in a deck chair with a drink and uh Watch the most remarkable uh, feats of aviation, including the Blue Angels, which are just terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, this, the air show is not visible from the, the bar? Uh, well, the bar's a little bit further up again. We would have been able to see some of it, but we would have had an obstructed view. You can see rocket launches from Cape Canaveral from the bar, hmm. but obviously rockets go a lot higher and uh, make a lot more noise. So I have been listening to a podcast I just discovered called Empire. It's uh, co-hosted by a British journalist I don't know and a British historian I don't know. I believe his name is William Dalrymple. And a lot of uh, Empire, British Empire material, as you might expect, you know, the great game and, and whatnot in India and Afghanistan, which doesn't, doesn't really interest me. So it's only about one out of every five or one out of every four episodes of the, this thing that I, I find uh, engaging and I'll actually listen. But they had two with uh, the historian Simon Seabag Montefiore, who, who wrote this just totally incredible uh, two-volume biography of Stalin. And he also has a book about the Romanovs and it was talking about the Romanovs. And this guy is just, he is a, a, a genius and, and so compelling as well to, to listen to. I'd put him up, you know, the, the Niall Ferguson, Andrew Roberts uh, category and 
Boy, I got to tell you, Russia Russia history is a uh, a perverse and and sick, but very fascinating thing. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Beckett Adams' column, The Media Will Never Forgive Israel for Not Bombing That Hospital. Um, I, just, <laughs> I love Beckett's work um, as a scourge of the media, and he's exactly right on the psychology at work right now. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? I had this teed up before. This is not an effort to mend fences. It is Michael Brandon Doherty's absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. The Powerlessness Corrupts. Um, I want to read a brief passage on some of the intellectual framework around this effort to steal the agency of people who commit acts of violence like what we witnessed in southern Israel two weeks ago, um, how that happens. Quote, it is precisely this powerlessness and lack of agency that licenses the liberatory violence that will birth the post-colonial man who finally has a chance at self-conception and human action unpolluted by his oppressor. Really sharp analysis. I commend it to your attention. But he's still wrong about J.D. Vance. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You're, you're a right, yeah. Charlie, what's your pick? I'm going to pick Dominic Pino's piece on a, well, he calls it a persecution by the Consumer Product Safety Commission of a fireworks manufacturer. The piece is terrific, but it starts in a fabulous way. That's how it begins. Theory. Regulators develop specialized scientific knowledge of the industries they regulate, and that expertise is necessary for effective governance in the modern world. Reality. Regulators have decided to ban fireworks based on whether the sound they make is more of a poof or a bang. Poofs are allowed and bangs are not under the audible effects regulation enforced <laughs> by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Dominic goes on to highlight how preposterous this is. So what, what is a poof in firework terms? I, 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 think, I thought they all made banks. Well, they're supposed to all make banks rich, but apparently we're being tricked by big firework. And the Consumer <laughs> Product Safety Commission is here to fix that. I don't know. I, I assume some of them sort of peter out. We have some mm -hmm. fireworks uh, here in Florida. You'll be shocked to learn uh, on July 4th. And you, you do get those that don't make a bang. Mm -hmm. They sort of go... Mm -hmm. In case anyone didn't get that, that was a fabulous impression. <laughs> so my pick is by our colleague Ryan Mills. Progressive polls unite with cops, conservatives to urge Supreme Court to allow homeless camping crackdown. And this has just been one of his beats over the last couple of years. Obviously, these homeless encampments, they are a blight. They're dangerous. They're no good for the people living in them. And Ryan has been uh, on, on this beat in places like Portland and Los Angeles, and it's extremely important. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Catholic Charities and Bethlehem College, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.